Welcome to the Aquas Podcast. Conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. This is the November 2018 edition, which is the one-year anniversary since the launch of Aquest, which we'll touch upon, I think, a little bit in our, today's conversation with my guest co-host, who is Adriel Mundryan. Adrian is a fellow lawyer by training, a fellow uh, entrepreneur in the funds industry, um, and an ETF expert. Is that fair enough, Adrian? Have I misspoken there? Serial entrepreneur. Serial entrepreneur. Serial, Better entrepreneur. again. Uh, so give us a little bit of uh, intro for yourself, uh, Adrian, a little bit of backstory. A uh, bit of background. Uh, so as you say, I'm a lawyer by training. I started my career in the late 90s, which gives my credentials as to uh, grey hair. Um, was a funds lawyer in Dublin. Um, saw the bright lights of London, moved to Alan and Overy, uh, and ended up uh, through a quirk of fate uh, heading up retail issuance for a Dutch bank, ABN AMRO. Um, which uh, was my exposure to crisis. That was my first attempt at uh, blowing up the world. My second attempt at blowing up the world. My first was, whilst at Alan Overy, I was a CDO and synthetic credit lawyer. So basically everything that went pear-shaped in the crisis, uh, I had a hand in. So you have a lot to answer for. I have a lot to answer for. <laughs> how, is your, how is your PI policy? Uh, is it <laughs> Expensive. <laughs> uh, but on a, uh, on a serious note, in, within AB and AMRO, um, in 05, we started to build uh, an ETF platform, Market Access. And then Market Access became quite successful quite quickly. And then that brought the platform and some of the people involved to the attention of uh, Goldman and Morgan, who were setting up a joint venture, which became the source business. Um, and I was employee number three in there in uh, uh, October of uh, 08. Um, and uh, we spent a, a lot of time flying to Dublin in 09 on planes, building out that platform when there was nothing else going on in the world because it was mm. a very, very quiet time. That was a lonely time, all right. Yeah, for the first uh, for the first couple of months, you'd get get go to go to city airport, and there'd be seven people on the flight. There'd be myself and six guys from the IMF, and then as time would go by, uh, another six months would pass. You'd have my, the seven myself, the guys from the IMF, and then the hedge fund guys would be on the plane. Uh, but you could see the economy during that period. We were into Dublin once a month. You could see the recovery coming because by by the time twenty twelve came around, the flights were full again, and everyone was going to instruct someone, and everyone was going to do business in town. And I think it was quite it was quite interesting I probably saw the recovery here before anyone else on the ground did because you had this kind of bird's eye view just of travelling in and out once a month to see how things were improving albeit slowly and you moved from there back into Dublin at some point yes so the uh uh, the source business um, uh, sold out to private equity um, uh, in 2015, um, at which point um, uh, we had built it, grown it, uh, sold it, uh, and I decided in my infinite wisdom that I wanted to uh, uh, return to law um, and had a fabulous time uh, working um, as a partner in uh, Arthur Cox and the Funds Group. Um, some excellent clients, some great exposures, um, but uh, to, uh, to to some extent from where I'd come from, slightly frustrating. Not the law firm itself, not the practice, but the clients. You ended up advising the clients more on how to build their business rather than actually just building the technical legal box to allow them to uh, launch ETFs or, or to launch funds. Um, and uh, my new business, Marka Beta, um, uh, founded by uh, Graham Dewar, uh, who's ex-legal uh, in general, he came into me as a client, first of all, and we kind of shared the same frustrations around how managers were actually, they, they were building boxes, but not understanding how to actually get their costs right, not understanding how to get their distribution effort right. And, and Marka Beta was kind of born out of trying to take 
people who had done many successful businesses with multi-billion of AUM and see if we could apply the lessons that we learned to large-scale organisations that wanted to get into the uh, exchange traded fund space. So we'll talk a little bit about maybe the more technical side of ETFs and legal and reg and trends and that kind of stuff a little bit later on. But um, talk to me a little bit about what exactly it is the market beta does, what it offers to clients that they get from today to new ETF on the market? We're a high-end consultancy and when we launched um, uh, we all had worked in various organisations so the one thing we understood is that every organisation, that funds companies are two things they're a brand and they're operations Um, funds companies number one, undervalue their brand and number two, their operations are born out of 20, 30, 40 years of sticky plasters and bad practice. Uh, And rather than trying to launch a white label organization to service these companies in launching ETFs, we wanted to go into large scale managers, 50 billion uh, euro plus of AUM, who didn't have an ETF offering, sit down with them and say, look, if you want to get into this space, and there are very good reasons why you should, here's how you should do it. And your problem is not whether or not Uh, you will be successful because you have a brand, you have track record, you have many billions of product. You fundamentally have to understand why you're getting into this space and how to right-size your cost base and how to build an infrastructure model that will allow you to compete not only in the ETF space over uh, over, uh, over the next decade, but also in the increasing competitive world of, uh, of, of, of funds and price competition. And why aren't these guys in ETFs already? Very good question. For most of them, uh, they stood back for a long time and said, it's just a wrapper. I'm not interested. My clients aren't aren't clambering for it. It's not a business I want to get into. It's carved up between a number of big players. I don't see any need for me to get into chasing uh, fees downwards. Um, And they stood back. And there's only so often you can stand back. And year after year, I think last year, one of the reasons I joined Market Beta and one of the reasons that we kind of pushed ahead this year is that last year was a, was a transformational year. There was 100 billion of inflows in Europe into ETFs. There was 100 billion of, uh, of outflows from active. Now, that's not directly correlated, but it's certainly indicative of a trend. And people are realizing that, uh, that for a lot of managers, they got very, very comfortable. If you had 30 billion sterling of AUM and you did nothing year on year, you ended up with market move uh, and legacy inflows, you'd end up at 32 billion and you'd move on from there. So a lot of these guys didn't really have to worry about these things, but now people are understanding it's about scale, it's about quality, it's about cost, it's about efficiencies, and it's about becoming that trillion manager. The, the new marker now for managers over the next the next decade is who can be in the trillion club. And that seems to be, some will do it through merger and acquisition and others will do it through very rapid growth. And what kind of product are they looking to bring? Are they taking existing product and wrapping an ETF around it? Are they, is it all index product? Um, it's a combination. So um, a number of them, and most of them rightly don't want to get into the uh, the passive big benchmark game, the S&P 500s, the FTSE 100s. That business is gone. For others, they're taking a strategic look because clients are coming to them now and saying, look, you've got a you've got a managed account platform for me. You've got a unit trust platform for me. You've got this uses product for me. Why can't I have an ETF? Um, uh, and a number of them are now saying, okay, it actually is the right time for us to start putting that putting that product on the shelf. 
Also for active managers, a lot of active managers saying, okay, my active strategies aren't really suited to ETFs. And they're probably right for transparency and other reasons. They probably won't work. But a number of them now saying, hang on a second, I have a lot of IP and value. I have IP and value in my brand. I have IP and value in, in my star managers. Can I come up with a with a, with a a concrete proposal around how I take that IP and make it a sub-brand or make it something that my clients will actually, will actually find useful for them as part of their portfolio? And this is the piece, again, most people are finding is that in the post-RDR, post-MIFID world, that, that, uh, that uh, asset managers, uh, or more to the point, uh, IFAs, uh, investment advisors and family offices are looking at blended portfolios of product across a series of price points. And they realize that if I'm only if I'm only at one end of that portfolio, I can only ever get into 20% of that portfolio. If I, if I make my product suite match what the advisor is putting in, then I've got a shot at getting into 100% of the portfolio. And that, that, that's, that, that's, that's certainly coming through. And so is it, is it from a distribution point of view or an asset gathering point of view, is it about keeping existing money and keeping existing clients rather than necessarily looking to win new mandates? at least to start off with. It's both. Um, we've heard from one manager uh, who recently uh, lost out um, uh, um, uh, on a pitch for a new business because they didn't have an ETF offering. And that changed their view. Suddenly it, it was, if nothing else, a checkbox. But there's much more to it than that because you're looking at where the development of distribution is going and distribution is key. And when you look at the ETFs in Europe, it's not a slam dunk. There's a, there's a long list of what you would call failed managers in terms uh, in terms of uh, distribution. Uh, but if you look at, at where the market is going from a technology standpoint, when you look at the growth of, of platforms uh, for uh, for distribution and you look at some of the more positive attributes of, uh, of ETFs, the ETF, an ETF is it's just a fund. There's no killer application in it. But when you combine all the attributes of it, it does become something which is increasingly more saleable uh, into uh, into uh, institutional as well as retail lines. And are these clients setting up their own ETF then? They're not necessarily white, you know, taking a white label option and, and or are they? A combination, and again, um, white labeling is something which works for an awful lot of people. If you're a, if you're a, a smaller scale US manager and you want to come to Europe, white labeling works. Now, white labeling came from the US, and like most things in the US, is either tax or regulatory driven. The white labeling in the US grew out of if you wanted to launch an ETF, you had to have exemptive relief. Only certain managers had the relief. So, uh, going on a platform meant you could launch product quickly, more efficiently than trying to apply for your own exemptive relief. So that that's burned an industry, and they're not comfortable and familiar with white labeling. In Europe, it's slightly different. Um, and if you're a big manager uh, and a big brand, you want to retain control of your IP. You want to control control uh, uh, your complexes. You want to control your boards. For some of them, there's too much risk involved in white labeling. And it doesn't necessarily... The problem with white labeling is, is not getting to market is if you're successful, it's how you decouple from the white label solution. So what a lot of people are doing is they'll build their own uh, their own usage uh, complex. They might they might bring in uh, service providers all around that to provide the kind of the, the ETF piece to them. Uh, but certainly um, certainly uh, it's an it, it's an option for people. Yeah, I found talking to clients not so much about white labeling uh, ETF funds, but for example looking at Manco options, you know, and if you mention a third-party Manco, some clients, it's a bit like Marmite, some clients are into it and, you know, they're open to the idea and some clients 
you won't get to the end of the sentence and they'll have shut you off. They're just not interested. So well, it seems to yeah, part of our business model was to look as to whether we built our own Manco. And actually, because of the, the clients we have and because of the space we're in, everybody has their own Manco. They're not looking for a Manco solution. So you're building something just to have it on the shelf, but it's not actually getting dusted down. Um, and all of the large scale players, and they say, um, we're, we're, in a, we're in a spot where we're talking to a lot of very, very large people and working with a lot of very large people. And they are... are um, they have the infrastructure. They just don't have the institutional knowledge as to what's the secret sauce of uh, an exchange-traded fund. How do I actually build my organization around it? And again, a lot have found that their cost base is wrong and that they a, a legacy manager, if you plug an ETF into a, into a legacy manager, it will fail. You almost have to build it as... As a, a, as, as a fun, fun complex within a fun complex where you give it its own cost lines, you give it its own base and that allows it to be as successful as possible. And is it expensive then? Because for, for, for their low cost funds and their you know ETF is a wrapper around a fund, it's not a product in and of itself, but there is, as you said, a secret sauce to it. There is a bit of genius to how the whole thing sits together. And so does that make it quite expensive to, to get your... your first one over the line absolutely and what people don't get is that on paper ETFs are more expensive than vanilla funds you have the cost of market making you have maintaining listings uh, you have a different marketing approach there are additional costs in there that you do not have over over a vanilla fund and that's why there's been a lot of head scratching from the traditional asset management community why would I go into a business which is more expensive and the fees are lower and it is because um, ETF providers have built a better mousetrap and if you look at some of the leading players out there, what they have done with their ETF businesses is they've actually pushed what they've learned from managing, running and operating uh, ETFs on a tight basis to protect margin. And they've brought those lessons and technologies into their broader asset management business. So in a world of uh, of falling total cost of ownership, they're insulating margin, which is allowing them to grow and protect their business. So is ETF business then a loss leader? Is there, or is there profit to be made? There's absolutely profit to be made, but there's greater profit to be made in actually taking the ideas um, surrounding an ETF business and bringing it into a broader asset manager where you, where you, you, you ring fence yourself for the future by having a, by, by, by having a lower cost business. Uh, and it's becoming asset management is becoming a volume business and, and you just can't charge for the sake of charging anymore and people have learned that and the ETF, the, the ETF businesses are practiced at, uh, at providing quality product at a, a very uh, at a lower cost whilst yet maintaining margins in, in, in what they do and ensuring ultimately that, that they're profitable so one of the things uh, I say a lot in my post-regulator days when I meet clients or do, doing training sessions or whatever is, if I were a regulator, so uh, if I were a regulator and I looked at ETFs, one of the things that would maybe concern me is the proliferation of ETFs. And as more and more providers get involved, there is a there is a, a skill set to running ETFs and running them well and uh, managing market makers and liquidity and that kind of stuff. Um, how do new providers address that? How do you make sure that they don't fall foul of just not having the skills there and, and next thing the fund seizes because the liquidity isn't there and the investors lose out? Is that a, is that managed or, or do they buy in talent or did they train up talent or how do they 
make sure they have the knowledge. It is absolutely managed and everyone is actually ensuring that they have the right talent within their organizations. It's a combination of buying in and a combination of training up. and A combination com- of hiring you guys. And a combination of taking us in to actually fundamental build the business, the process, the staffing levels and allocations to ensure that you have a very robust, sustainable business. And I always say to regulators, uh, people look at ETFs and say, well, they're lower cost, therefore there must be higher risk. I say, well, actually, no. Look at traditional fund management and you have to ask the question, why are they high cost and how are investors interests being served by being in these higher cost legacy products and you'll find the investor interests are not being served by the higher cost uh legacy process uh, 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 products. But what we're finding is we're, we're getting to a balance now where it's not all about price, thankfully. People are understanding that there are benefits and costs of different product types, different asset classes. There's now a better blended pricing. And I actually think what's going on now is that people are not cutting costs. They are actually fundamentally restructuring and right-sizing their businesses and using technology to ensure that they have a fundamentally better system for running an asset manager as opposed to uh, as opposed to just putting a sticky plaster on an operations model that worked 10 years ago but doesn't actually work today uh, we've heard we all have the anecdotal stories of guys receiving in pdf files then printing them and having a guy in the basement who's 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 inputting the numbers on the pdf into the system um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, asset managers have have had to and are becoming much more tech savvy and much more automated and much more processed driven which is actually redu- fundamentally reducing risk in the industry sounds like it's a maturing industry then and this is what happens as you get more used to running a particular product suite and absolutely and if you look at at, at um, asset management as the last bastion uh, of uh, with a, an absence of kind of price competition you look at the airlines you look at the supermarkets their oper- operating margins are tiny compared to the asset management industry and is now coming to the asset management industry to justify uh, their existence and justify why they're charging the fees they're charging and some are, are very very good at what they're doing and they're charging fees and I personally am very happy to pay 1% 1.5% to some managers I'm less happy to be paying 60 basis points to someone for what I determine to be a vanilla exposure that I can get somewhere else for 10, 15, 20 basis points. Um, and it's partly, it's the more educated investor as well who's pushing back on that because the market returns aren't necessarily there. So you look at every aspect of your portfolio and say, okay, what's working for me and who's working hardest for me and uh, uh, and who's being rewarded and am I happy with them being rewarded? Well, price competition, obviously, that piece of regulatory work is, this part of the world anyway, really been been driven by the UK, probably the first instance, the FCA, because they actually have a competition mandate as part of their um, organisation, whereas over in Ireland, it's not part of the central bank's mandate, but you still see questions around things like closet index trackers and value for money are, are starting to appear here as well. And also, we we, we tend to be um, a net taker of developments in the UK that kind of that, that that wash back into this market. But the best example I give is the is the RDR, um, uh, the the retail distribution review carried out by the FCA, which had a knock on effect of a lot of IFAs in the UK. You had thousands of IFAs who just realised the amount of work they had to do to comply without getting trail commissions and actually justify their existence and charge their clients. A lot of them actually wound up their business and merged with other providers and they all hubbed around a technology solution. They all hubbed around one uh, one um, Salesforce type database and they rebuilt their business model and the clients are now better served by a single larger institution that's much better managed, much better run, 
uh, at ultimately a lower cost to the end client, uh, there is nothing but upside to that. So clients are in a better position. Absolutely. Happy days. Let's talk a little bit about um, regulatory developments and regulatory landscape for, for ETFs. Uh, and I suppose the natural place to start for that for us is probably the central bank's discussion paper and then feedback statement. What's your take on that whole process? Not so much the outcome, but just the, as a as a body of work. Um, I, I think it was it, it was an excellent piece of work, and actually it's become a sort of a thought leadership piece globally now for regulators when looking at exchange traded uh, product. Nobody had pulled together such a comprehensive paper before which dealt with every aspect of the product lifestyle from uh, from market making to APs to distribution to bills to product types to technology to transparency um, and it, it it was very interesting to see the process in terms of how that involved evolved um, I think um, ETFs is one of those areas where it's still a very new industry relatively speaking those who are in it are still relatively new um, and it has a relatively clean copybook. It has never had uh, scandals, shall we say, in the regulatory space in terms of fees or in terms of things which have caused regulators to wrap an industry on the knuckles. Uh, and if you go back to um, 2012, when we were looking at, at uh, synthetic um, uh, 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 structures, it was a great openness um, in the industry towards the regulatory community who came in and who looked at that space. And we've kind of carried that openness on. I think everybody understands where the push points are in the industry from a, 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 a regulatory and industry standpoint. I think they were aired. They were aired well. There was good questions asked. There was very good responses put in. And the end result was a very, very considered response to it, which some positives for the industry in terms of developments on share classes, for example, which we may come to again, I think is is definitely um, a huge opportunity in the next number of years. Um, disappointment around transparency, but that's an, uh, that's an ongoing discussion and that's an ongoing debate, uh, but overall very well received. Yeah, well, let me declare my interest here because I did work in the central bank at the time the paper was drafted and issued. Um, and it has been very well received by industry. I think it was nice as a regulator to to get ahead somewhat of developments uh, rather than to be reactionary, which obviously post crisis, particularly you, uh, no more regular regulators in the modern industry generally were reacting to new legislation and what have you. But but the ETF piece was an opportunity to take, as you said, something where there hadn't been a problem to date and hasn't been a problem to date and to try and look forward and look back and anticipate, well, what could go wrong? So what is it that might have me hauled up in front of an Oireachtas committee? What is it that might have uh, something that causes investors to lose out? What, what, are the, what are the scenarios that causes that to happen? And and then to, to think about those and think about, well, how do we stop that happening? So I thought it was... It was good and it was it was uh, interesting to get yourself in that kind of position. Yeah, and, and from the central bank's perspective, um, it's very important to recognise that Ireland has 55% of the domiciled ETFs in Europe. So um, there's huge risk to the central bank in terms of something happening which hasn't, which hasn't been thought about and damaging the brand, damaging the domicile. So to look under the hood, to check in and say, look, do we understand what's going on here? Are we happy with aspects of it? Are there things that, 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 can, that can be uh, uh, improved is, is a very prudent way for the regulator to look at a market. But what was great from our perspective is the way that the um, central bank due, uh, drew 
questions and ideas from papers in the US, in Canada, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Japan and various places, uh, and particularly from uh, IOSCO, and pull it all together so that Ireland has become this kind of central linchpin to pulling it together a bit of global regulatory cooperation around how does this industry develop, what are the challenges for it, and you can see a sort of a, a worldwide uh, homogenization happening across exchange traded funds which is only to the benefit uh, of uh, of investors in various jurisdictions yeah you you can see even if you look at the bibliography and the number of references and and footnotes throughout the paper that it is a deep piece that wasn't thrown together there was a, a lot of uh, you can you can see the amount of thought that went into the into the work and it has put the regulator here in a position where they are in that sort of thought leadership uh, position and i think it it adds to the depth of the work that's coming up from IOSCO, obviously of ETFs and their agenda, that they're starting from a position that somebody's done a lot of the, the legwork and you're, you're bound to see similar themes being thought of and dealt with in the IOSCO work because sort of the regulators front running piece has already sort of highlighted them as topics that maybe the industry uh, and the regulators need to think about in terms of the specific outcomes on share classes so there is a there will be a move to allow a single uh, fund to have both exchange traded and non-exchange traded share classes there'll be um, an ability for different cutoff times for hedge share classes but no move on transparency so that is still a requirement to make public publicly available the full portfolio on a daily basis um you reasonably happy with that are you jumping out of your skin delighted are you uh, Crying at your pint, disappointed. I I think the share class piece is actually quite important because a lot of people who who are looking, um, what we have in the industry is we have platform proliferation, which is causing concerns for people that they have to go and build a new box with zero AUM, staff it, run it, and see what happens. So the ability to launch an exchange-traded share class of an existing successful product with existing AUM levels is attractive for people. It's not without its challenges in terms of tax and other issues around it, but I think people will be able to build a scalable share class model uh, and we will see a number of those coming to market in the next year. That uh, soon, do you think? Uh, that soon. That right. Soon. And is that going to be, like, presumably you have to have a strategy that you can use in an ETF if you're going to bring it into an existing... Yeah, it has to be ETFable. Um, yeah. It has to work in terms of positioning. It has to work in terms of product. But you have product manufacturers out there, if I can call asset managers that, product manufacturers who have hundreds of products. And if they go through their catalogue, they can find dozens which are eminently suitable to being in that box of being... A, a, a stands a chance of being a successful ETF product and it allows them to tap the distribution model and tap the markets that prefer ETF product over non-ETF product. So it'll be very interesting to see how that develops uh, and expands. Well, I think you've just invented a new word there, ETFable. Yes. Have you used it before? Because I've never heard it. No. Uh, here, <laughs> okay. Here we go. First it's exclusive. Well, you, you've coined it yeah. so you can claim the credit. On the transparency side, um, are you surprised? Are you bitterly disappointed? Is it a massive blow? Is it... There's a, big, the there's a bigger picture at play here. Uh, I don't think the central bank could be seen to kind of uh, go out on its own in terms of transparency and make bold statements in terms of uh, uh, um, uh, 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 changing a, a position. There are discussions going on uh, at ESMA level. There are discussions going on at IOSCA level. Uh, personally, I don't see the public policy reasons why if I hold an S&P 500 
unlisted I get transparency once a month as soon as I if for example if I hold a listed share class of that same fund I'm suddenly supposed to get daily transparency on the underlying I don't want it I don't need it and if I don't have it on one side why should I have it by virtue of it being listed which is the the industry comment that's been around uh, for a long time I think the position will change um, and it'll change one of two ways you either you either bring everyone up to the transparency standard or you actually take the, the you, you take the correct view that what we're having in terms of transparency model for end investors works very very well it hasn't proven to be a problem that people need to absolutely understand what's under the hood particularly for active strategies on a daily basis and it's actually holding back the development and the push of active strategies into the ETF space which fundamentally I think is in investors interest because it will it will lead to them getting better structured more reasonably costed active exposures um, uh, uh, once that 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 transparency differential uh, is changed, but for now, it's 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 same as uh, it's it's unhelpful that we're getting different treatment in different jurisdictions. But from an Irish perspective, um, uh, we are where we are. But I think it's something industry will be knocking on the door on for the next number of years because it is hard to see a downside. Now we always say that that transparency is great, and we shouldn't put that genie back in the box. But for certain active strategies and active managers, it's really important that they hold on to their secret sauce. Investors want that. Investors are paying for that. And I've, as an investor, if I want a listed product, I, I I want it active, and I and I absolutely want that manager to be able to provide provide that that positive outperformance. Then I'm quite happy for them to withhold transparency for a period of time. I think it may well change. Uh, I think where a regulator needs to be comfortable is, you know, the first question is, do I need transparency from an operational perspective to make the ETF work, particularly with the secondary market mechanism and with the uh, authorised participants and the, the market makers? And if I do have to disclose it to them, is there a risk to my end investor that people in in an intermediate role can take advantage of the knowledge that they have and that isn't being disclosed to the end investor and make a profit at the expense of the end investor. Um, and I think it's, it's maybe around there. And that might be um, an education piece in joining the dots from what a regulator knows to what the industry knows, because obviously the industry will know the ins and outs of the actual operations. Um, but I have a sense that it, if those questions were answered you're moving in probably closer. And, and that's very interesting because behind the scenes, we've had discussions with a lot of active managers and we've been very, very clear that there's a lot of product uh, in the active space that is absolutely not suitable to be an ETF format. And it's because they don't even want the APs or market makers to know. Or even if the APs or market makers had the knowledge, they wouldn't be able to adjust their risk um, quick enough to have the spreads as narrow as they need to be for an exchange traded product. So to be clear, the market is, is almost self-regulating and self-clearing in terms of products which are suitable disclosure-wise or not, because ultimately the person taking risk on exchange on a given day is the market maker. If the market maker can't get the information that he needs, or if the if the promoter doesn't want to give that information, then that product ultimately will not work and cannot work. Uh, and we have to s- sort of get to that point of monitoring to ensure that who is making a market, how often is that market being made, uh, and how, how tight are the spreads during that period, uh, and ensuring that, that people are in the market 
for as much as they can be on products. And once there's a commitment to be in the market there, you know that that market maker who's taking on the risk is very, very comfortable that he can price the product. Mm. I see, ideally, as a, as a regulator, you, you know, your, your best solution is that the market regulates itself. Um, but as a regulator, a question is, well, will it, how will it regulate itself or what will happen in times of stress when your interest is to serve yourself rather than necessarily the product or the investors that you're, um, that you're servicing? Anyway, um, can you tell me briefly as you look forward for the next 12 months, maybe a little bit further, what you see in store for ETF industry? Obviously, the, the numbers are all very positive and the projections for growth are all very positive. Is there anything to doubt those? There's nothing to doubt those. Um, We've had uh, 47 consecutive months of inflows into European ETFs and ETPs, which is phenomenal in terms of a in terms of growth story. I think we do have a problem that too much of the inflows are going to one end of the market. There's, there's a couple of players who are participating um, uh, uh, to a much greater degree in capturing net new assets or net new flows uh, in that space. I think what we're going to see is a pre- proliferation of legacy managers stepping off the fence and and coming into the ETF space. We saw Legal and General, who purchased the Canvas platform from ETF Securities earlier in the year, uh, 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 come to market, uh, and they've come to market with a series of core products, which is very much in their investors' interest. So they're launching five and ten basis point products, um, and it's very much additive to their product offering for their for their clients. So you will see some of the Legal and General competitors look at that and say, "Okay, there there is an angle here. They have a suite of product. They have an idea in terms of how they best." provide uh, that again that portfolio of exposures that portfolio of product type and that portfolio of costs to their end investors you will see many many follow that so we can only see growth in the space we can also only see growth globally it's uh i was in uh, speaking to new york stock exchange two weeks ago at a sort of a global event on etfs and the one thing that kept coming up in conversations from other areas was the importance of usage etfs uh, globally going forward. The South American panel was very much talking about how uh, how European USAID ETFs are being distributed primarily uh, in their markets at the minute. Um, Israel is a huge growth story uh, for uh, USAID ETFs uh, and the Asian experience as well in terms of Singapore, uh, Japan uh, and otherwise is, is about the acceptability of USAID's product in those markets. So certainly huge, huge opportunity. And what about the uh, the product type, the strategies involved, the underlying assets? Uh- um, we, we, we are start, starting to see a move away, and I hate the term personally, uh, smart beta, because it implies somehow there's, there's, there's a distinction from dumb beta. There's just beta that works and makes a return. Uh, but you are, you, you, we are starting to see um, uh, people look at active strategies and certainly more active product. Um, uh, people have missed the fact that, that PIMCO, as a, as a fixed income provider, have 10 billion euros of active product in Europe at the minute and that's kind of passed people by so we're certainly seeing more active and we're certainly seeing more thought out thematics and more thought out strategies and people looking at their client base and looking at their product set and looking at their brand development in terms of what is their value added for their client and can they build an ETF strategy around that whether whether it's packed, uh, passive uh, or active um, and that is that is the, the, the move away from the large passive benchmarks and what I call bespoke content rather than sort of smart beta. We're certainly seeing more bespoke content and people using and leveraging their brands. If I am a very big US house, I have a brand, I have a thematic, I have something I'm good at, and they're they're wrapping an ETF distribution strategy around that. 
And one of the sort of the things identified as an emerging concern in the central bank's discussion paper was around a risk that um, the underlyings of the ETFs might, that the ETF providers might sort of stray into underlyings that were less liquid than um, than the ETFs that are already there. Is that a, is that a valid concern? Is that a, you seeing it? That's not really emerging as a trend. Um, it's a huge concern, um, uh, particularly as industries evolve, that people move into spaces they shouldn't be in just trying to get ahead or trying to have a new angle to sell products to clients. So we'll kind of go back a few years to nuisance and you go back to kind of nuisance. very, 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 yeah. very structured payoffs going into usage and the use of derivatives to provide exposures which may have more risks attached to them that are not necessarily clear from the tin. So you're certainly starting, starting to see providers, again, self, self-policing self and move away from volatility products and move towards um, a more, more, more understandable products. In the, in the channels these things are going into, things that people can explain uh, to their end investors. Um, I think the industry is quite protective of the uh, the the ETF brand as being sort of uh, uh, um, uh, competitive, uh, transparent, well-structured products that do exactly what they say on the tin. I don't think the industry will be happy if there's a move uh, to uh, more challenging asset classes within the ETF wrapper. We're quite lucky in that the uses framework puts um, a lot of restrictions on what we can and can't squeeze into it. There's much more of of, uh, of a sort of, the risky product goes more towards the ETP space, the structured notes that has always been there in terms of doing kind of highly levered or esoteric classes or property or things like that. Um, so I think we're quite lucky to use its framework is putting the, uh, the 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 handcuffs on, and then also the ability to market make a product that is that is key to people. And if it, it is if it's difficult to market make, it's not going to go into ETF format because it is difficult to maintain a competitive listing on it, and there are breaches and regulatory headaches attached to it at an exchange or regula- or regula- regulatory level when you have to explain why something isn't working. So I'm sort of confident that we're not going to stray into the sort of the uh, 0456 territory where we went into all types of things being shoved in because we could. I think as an industry, we've learned uh, now uh, um, uh, to step away from the sort of the, the the investment banking approach of can you get it in and more to the long-standing asset manager approach of is this additive to my clients and will it negatively impact my brand if it goes wrong? So let's just change tack to wrap up. Uh, Adrian, talk to me a bit about uh, your experience as a with market beta for the last 10 months, is it? And uh, what's the plans for the next 12 months? We've had a very, very busy kickoff. In fact, when I joined uh, Market Beta in February of this year, my plan was to have a sort of a, a quiet couple of months and work into the business plan and work into the business model and see where we go from there. Uh, unfortunately for me, we actually hit the ground running and we've had some very good conversations and some very good pieces of business from our our client set because everyone is interested in uh, how do I build a successful, sustainable, multi-billion euro ETF platform and bringing the kind of, uh, as, as somebody joked, the brains trust within market beta to bear is, is, is very interesting because you look at Graham, Joy, myself, others, everyone has been through at least two ETF successful platforms and launches, which brings a very kind of different, differing flavor of what you need to do to A, enter the space, 
be be relevant uh have a sustainable business model um and uh, and take part in the growth story again the european space is littered with with also runs and some people have been very successful like the source now investco business of stepping in and carving out a niche um uh, so we've been having some very very good conversations with our client base it's been fun it's been hard work but um certainly looking at our pipeline um, the uh, the there, there will be a proliferation of new entrants into the market in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. People are getting serious about the space now. Uh, um, an ETF is just a wrapper, but is the wrapper of choice. Uh, and as people often say, you know, when did you move away from from a, a vanilla unit trust into a a, 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 a a uses type model? It just happened over time. People people always gravitate towards the product set that they think delivers the best optionality and the best results for them and their clients. And we're uh, we're we're very excited. Well, as I mentioned at the outset, a quest is one year old this month. So happy birthday to me <laughs> and to a quest. I'm liking your cake here. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it's inter- I'm not a serial entrepreneur. This is my my first toe in the water, um, but it has been fun. It has been plenty of traveling and you know um, foot uh, shoe leather worn and that kind of stuff. But um, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a great experience and um, something I am glad that I have done. And and looking into the year two, you can sort of see that the um, the seeds have been sown, I think, for, you know, and the brand is out there and that kind of stuff. So, Well, what's been interesting from my perspective, looking at you and looking at the development of the business, um, to, to a certain extent, it was a little bit of envy when I saw you step out. I was like, yeah, that's a huge gap in the market. And why hasn't anyone done that before? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So don't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, let's wrap it up there. Uh, as we do, I want you to thank uh, Adrian Mulryan from Market Beta for his time and his insights and his contributions. Thank you very much, Adrian. It's great to have you. Uh, thank Gav Timlin from Create Sound for recording and editing the podcast. Uh, for everybody else, just to keep an eye out, there will be um, the November online tutorial from Request will be on USIT's performance fees. So we're going to look at uh, the background performance fees generally, some of the terminology around equalization, high watermarks, that kind of stuff. But particularly look at the rules that apply to um, the use of performance fees and the central bank's recent letter to industry about their expectations uh, and try and pull all of those pieces together. So keep an eye out. That uh, tutorial will take place later this month. And if you're interested in logging on for it, there is a free trial available through the website. So just take a look at the sign-in area. Thank you very much, and we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Aquas Podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on regs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.